Welcome to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. I'm Zahil Rahman. Now, one billion COVID-19 vaccines and a pledge to continue funding development across Africa. Chinese President Xi Jinping made the comments virtually as part of the annual forum on China-Africa cooperation. As the two-day summit in Senegal comes to a close, China emphasized how crucial the partnership is. China is Africa's largest trading partner with nearly $190 billion in trade. But can China avoid criticism over taking advantage of natural resources and saddling developing nations with unsustainable debt? This is Inside Story. Well, let's bring in our guests now. Joining me from Nairobi is Hassan Kanenji, the director of Horn International Institute for Strategic Studies. In London, Anthony Goldman, he's the head of Pro Media Consulting, which advises companies and institutions on business and political risk in Africa. And from Beijing, China, we have Andy Mock, a senior research fellow at the Centre for China and Globalisation. A warm welcome, gentlemen, to all of you. Mr Kanenji, can I just give you the first question? I mean, to understand... China's contact with Africa, we have to sort of go back to its origin uh, and first contact, you might say, between the two uh, continents nearly 500 years ago, back in the 15th century. Early trade was that initial contact that they had. It was very important and it still remains important today. Yeah, it is indeed true that uh, the interaction between China and and the African continent uh, go back hundreds of years ago at a time, of course, that preceded uh, colonialism. And uh, this is something uh, that has also been established uh, based on the evidence of Chinese presence along the African coast and along the East African coast that actually go back uh, further about a thousand years ago. Now, the the transactions were significantly modified, of course, in the period following the Second World War, in which after the coming to power of Mao Zedong, the Communist Party saw it fit to work with a lot of liberation movements on the continent. And they remained very supportive, especially on the left-wing side of African politics for much of the Cold War. And I think uh, that is is paying dividends, especially in the post-Cold War period, in which China has sought to entrench those relations further by establishing a more presence in terms of robust economic as well as military posture. Uh, Let me bring in Anthony Goldman there, because you've very neatly brought me to that uh, post-Second World War Uh, period and the Cold War, uh, Andy, that obviously saw China, you might say, come in under the radar, dare I say it, into into Africa to deal with those governments that were more left-leaning, more sympathetic. And of course, China itself, and I'm quoting here from uh, Mao Zedong here, uh, where he also described himself and China as being part of the third world. They they recognised and had an affiliation with parts of Africa that was very important in building up that relationship. Yes, I think that uh, as part of that, I think that there were projects that that China began to engage with uh, following on from that support for countries in southern Africa. So, for example, building uh, infrastructure railway between Tanzania and Zambia that was seen as a kind of a landmark thing of the 1970s, a landmark achievement in terms of 
infrastructure. Mostly, I think, uh, in that period in uh, of the Cold War, the most visible presence was actually you know, the, uh, the tensions between China and Taiwan, and that uh, you could go to African capitals and see a competition, if you like, between Taiwanese-built uh, palace or a Chinese-built uh, national stadium. And in a sense, I think uh, there's still an echo of some of that competition, uh, even today, where China is still anxious that countries in Africa don't look too far to, to, to Taiwan for support. But uh, on the whole, I think the tilt uh, since the end of the Cold War has been much more in favour of China building up actual you know, uh, economic ties based less uh, solely around strategy and diplomacy as support for uh, the ever-increasing ever demands of Chinese industry. Let me bring in Andy Mock there. I know you wanted to come in uh, hearing our two previous speakers there, Andy, and without giving our viewers a full history lesson, which this programme is not, certainly China's influence in the region and on the continent has been long-standing and continues to be, certainly uh, after this conversation or virtual conversation they've had this year. No, indeed, Sahil. So I would just very briefly start with 1949, with the founding of the People's Republic of China, and you quoted Mao Zedong. I think from day one, of the establishment of new China. The philosophy has been to uh, treat Africa with a spirit of sincerity, uh, genuine cooperation, and mutual respect. And I think that has been a common thread linking the decades since uh, 1949 to today in terms of understanding uh, the relationship between China and the continent. Would you say, though, that um, you, you say that they wanted to try and treat all of those countries with equal respect, but there was also this Cold War between Russia and the United States, or Russia and the West, uh, and they wanted to gain influence in Africa as well. Do you think that China itself at that time was also obviously very mindful of what its position could be or should be in the future if and when the Cold War ended? No, certainly. And the world has changed tremendously since the early 50s. So geopolitically, of course, we've seen the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States. And China played an important part of that uh, geostrategically. Um, and from that perspective, uh, I think certainly uh, Africa has been seen as a battleground, maybe uh, even a playground for, of course, colonial powers and I think today as well, we've seen in the news, I'm sure, uh, all this talk of the United States wanting to contest uh, Chinese influence mm -hmm. in Africa. But I think one of the things to point out, too, you touched on, Zahil, is that um, China has always seen itself as part of the developing world. And I think rightly so. Uh, today, uh, Xi Jinping says that China will never forget that it is a member of the uh, group of developing nations. And if we go back to what Deng Xiaoping said about crossing the river by feeling the stones, I think what China has very clearly enunciated in the last few years is that it has found a way across the river and now is willing to show other people that path, but without imposing any type of ideology, foreign ideology, or any kind of political or economic mechanisms along with that, and letting Africa, other parts of the world, develop on their own terms. Okay, Anthony, can I then bring you in? Because obviously China may see itself in whatever terms it wants to, but China is viewed by some, i.e. the US, in terms of its influence uh, across Africa as a bit of a bogeyman. I mean, they need a new enemy, you might say sometimes, this time an economic enemy, and that is China. 
Yes, I think there's something in that. I mean, I, I think uh, uh, I think certainly um, at the beginning of China's new economic engagement with Africa, maybe 20 or so years ago, perhaps some of that rhetoric about you know China being you know, a fairer partner, not having a kind of a neo-colonial agenda, that China had its own experience of uh, rapid growth and uh, taking people out of poverty, industrialization, that might have had some currency. I don't think it really does. Uh, anymore, I don't think anybody in Africa uh, really thinks like that. China is just, you know, another potential source of uh, financing, another potential and uh, competitive for projects. And I think uh, uh, I was speaking uh, earlier this week with a, um, a senior official in, in an African country. Said that perhaps it might be better if uh, people worried less about uh, what China thought of uh, Africa and more what uh, Africa needed from its partners. And I think that you know, this uh, the competition, if you like, uh, uh, between uh, rival powers doesn't do a great deal for the people who ultimately are meant to benefit in terms of mm. actually providing projects on their own merits, you know, projects that are commercially viable and have less kind of of this uh, uh, rhetorical baggage, you know, from, you know, that makes more sense perhaps in Washington or, or even Beijing than perhaps in Burkina Faso or, or Zambia. We'll talk about the specific economics in a moment, but um, Hassan Kanenji, can I just come back to you? You know, Africa itself and its uh, subsequent nations within the continent have had to deal with military coups, cross-border confrontation, climate change and famine, ethnic rivalries. Each country has its own beset problems. How has China, in your opinion, been able to maintain a good relationship with all of those different sorts of regimes and governments when they've had this whole range of problems across the continent? I think China has learned from some of the mistakes uh, that were done by previous powers, especially Europe and partly the United States, in part because it does not choose governments for Africans, and that is very attractive to African leadership, which more often sometimes is not accountable and sometimes they tend to be authoritarian. Uh, secondly, uh, African countries have found the path of Chinese growth relatable, in part because it's a country that is previously been classified as a third world, even though that's a political country. But increasingly, of course, it's moving into the higher stages of being an advanced economy. But uh, thirdly, I think because China has, look, looks at Africa as a partner and does not seek uh, to uh, involve in the internal affairs of individual African countries, it has allowed both friends and enemies within the continent to actually be able to work with China, irrespective of which government of the day is in power. And I think because of the kind of relations that it sought to build uh, while it was relatively poor, and the, the, the perception of equal partnership that is seeking to build, even at the cost of increased debt trap that most African countries are finding themselves in, uh, China has been able to be successful in areas where, for instance, the West uh, has failed. And in part also because it does not have the colonial baggage and is not viewed as negatively as uh, some of the uh, Western metropolis, mm. even though, as I did mention, there is an increasing uh, sense that a number of countries are sinking further into Chinese date that is going to prove unsustainable in the near future. There is this, uh, Anthony Goldman, there is this real debate going on, isn't there, at the moment about uh, Africa's resources, what China wants and what it needs it for in terms of its manufacturing and, and product base. I mean, when we look at uh, some of the statistics, six countries make up 68% of total exports, Angola, uh, accounting for a third, uh, Angola, Libya, uh, import or oil, 
from Gabon. Gabon also uh, imports oil and manganese. The Republic of Congo, a series of reports we've had on Al Jazeera News, you know, uh, and the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, extracts cobalt and copper. I mean, there's a lot of natural resources that China requires, and, and, and the balance of payments is lopsided as well. You know, what Africa uh, is able to buy off China is, is far less than what China, you might say, takes from Africa. No, you make a very good point. Uh, I mean, Africa is not a country. Obviously, there's a huge di distinction between the, the, the most favoured trading partners and some of those countries where maybe perhaps China has much less of a relationship. And uh, uh, Angola, South Africa are particularly important. Uh, I think we've seen some growth in, in, in West Africa in recent years. Uh, China's tried to crack Nigeria with uh, different degrees of uh, success, but I think that uh, on top of you know, the, uh, the 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 products that uh, the, the the raw materials typically that uh, China seeks to secure from Africa, the energy security, mineral security it needs uh, to support growth. In that sense, it is fairly familiar to the kind of patterns of economic engagement that other uh, industrialized countries uh, seek with uh, Africa. One of the differences, perhaps, is that China as a major manufacturer of cheap uh, and cheaper products is that actually uh, there's quite a large informal trade that's perhaps not always captured in the official uh, data between uh, China and Africa. Quite a lot of that's dipped, obviously, because of the pandemic and the lack of travel over the last 18 months or so. But until that, you know, there were regular uh, flights from direct from China to parts of Africa where small traders even were going and picking up uh, you know, uh, petty goods, you know, the things to sell at markets. So I think that you know, the, the, the picture isn't always captured by the big data, if you like. And I think that there has been quite a deep relationship in, uh, from the top as well as uh, the bottom with Africa, even where China's strategic interests do focus more on a particular and a, and a small set of countries. Uh, Andy Mock, um, Xi Jinping announced the fact that there would be less money being invested in uh, Africa as a continent. That can be interpreted in many ways. One of the ways that it has been interpreted is that China is listening to what Africa needs and adapting its finances accordingly. Others are suggesting that China is walking away from Africa. What's your interpretation of it? Well, I think the reality is much more complex and nuanced uh, than to portray it in such uh, black and white binary terms. And I want to back up a little bit to what the earlier speaker said about China learning uh, some lessons uh, from the European and perhaps the Americans uh, in dealing with Africa. I would say it's much more profound than that, and that China brings a true sense of empathy in working with uh, the continent because uh, China has not that long ago struggled with exactly the same issues. Um, uh, high mortality rates, malnutrition, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that it's coming from a very, very different place. And the philosophy, the governing uh, principles are non-interference and respect for each country's systems and choices. So I think that allows it to deal much more effectively uh, with the countries of Africa. Now that then uh, leads us to the current question which you just asked, uh, what is China doing now or going forward? I think it's important to recognize uh, that China does not look at Africa as a patron-client relationship. But again, if we think about it as mutual respect, win-win, um, there will always be adjustments. Uh, we look at uh, trade with Africa. It's been about $200 billion a year over the last five years or so, but it goes up and down 
uh, based on exogenous factors as well as uh, domestic market considerations. So I think that the longer term direction is much, much greater uh, interaction and integration with Africa. But we have to see how that unfolds in terms of investments, uh, trade details, um, all kinds of other things, uh, technical assistance. I believe okay. China provides about 45% of its uh, foreign aid to Africa. Uh, Andy, let me just bring in uh, Mr. Kananji. You were nodding your head in, in, I think, in agreement with some of the points that were being made. But can I also add to whatever you might want to say now in that uh, Xi Jinping has said that he wants to open green lanes for African agricultural exports. He wants to speed up inspection and quarantine procedures to increase the scope of products with zero tariff treatment to help achieve a goal, one assumes, of equality, of trade equality. Is that how you see it? That is in part a response to an increasing sentiment of the continent that the balance of payments are heavily in favor of China. And therefore, China is trying to look for ways in which they can appease their African partners. It is important, though, that uh, there's still the increased appeal of China, uh, while economically it's seeking sometimes uh, often to remake some of the African economies uh, in, in its own image uh, by, by following its own path. It does not seek to make Africa in its own image in terms of values. And I think those two things are the ones that have connected these two continents. However, I would look at uh, the recent uh, statements uh, by the leader of China as more public diplomacy that is meant to actually appease leaders of the continent and generally the local population that has been complaining about uh, increased Chinese influence in ways that sometimes disadvantages especially local labor. Uh, Anthony Goldman, uh, I'll be coming back to, for this question both to you and to Andy Mock. But Anthony, can I just bring in, earlier uh, in the week we showed on Al Jazeera a report where Chinese um, mine officials had sanctioned the beating of a, a local man in the Democratic Republic of Congo for stealing cobalt rock. This was videoed, it was shown widely, uh, we've reported on it. When Andy Mock says that, you know, China's initial thoughts are always about empathy with Africa, being equal with Africa, understanding the needs of Africa, when you see video like this, it undermines that argument, doesn't it, about what China really wants. And this is the, you might say, the tag that Western media, Western governments grab hold of and say, you see, this is what China is really about. Well, it does. And I think that there may be a difference between uh, policy from headquarters and what actually happens on the ground. And certainly I think that that's not the only instance, you know, everybody is a cameraman now, and there have been a couple of instances from, you know, from West Africa as well, similar things where, you know, the, the relations uh, at the coalface almost literally uh, do deteriorate quite sharply. I mean, I think that that's probably true with uh, lots of foreign companies, but the idea that China is somehow very distinct and, and much better in that regard is belied by the reality of events in a lot of places on the ground, including those where it's been captured uh, in the way that you describe. And it's also true that in certain uh, in, in some of those countries where China has had its most active engagement, it's also become a domestic political issue. In, in, in Zambia, there's certain populist mileage that political parties make in making an issue out of uh, Chinese investments and uh, other elements of Chinese policy, because although China uh, was never a colonial power, obviously in, in Africa, there has been quite a lot of immigration from China as part of its uh, 
uh, growth and uh, of economic ties with Africa. And I think, you know, upwards of uh, a million uh, people have moved to Africa over the last 20 years from uh, China, and that's concentrated in a few places and sometimes uh, not always with you know, the most positive results. These are difficult changes to make uh, and not, not changes that happen easily or overnight. Uh, Andy, can I come in for a brief comment from you on that as well? No, I would absolutely agree. I think it's intellectually dishonest uh, to attribute the actions or the misdeeds of an individual to a government policy. I mean, we all know uh, that those of us that I'm sure every all of us have interacted with large organizations, whether governmental or for profit. And one of the big challenges, and, and especially for Chinese enterprises working in a place far from home with a different language, different culture, different customs, uh, that these are very, very difficult circumstances. And I think it would be surprising if some sort of uh, mistakes or abuses did not happen. We also need to recognize mining is a difficult business as well. Mm. So these are unfortunate, and I think that they should not happen in an ideal world. But certainly, uh, as far as I know, there is no policy sure. on the Chinese side to condone these types of actions. Uh, Hassan Kanenji, can I just come back to you now? Of course, uh, Xi Jinping has promised a billion doses of the uh, COVID-19 Chinese-made vaccine to the continent. Uh, obviously, a, a welcome donation, but it comes in the context of the World Health Organization, who promised under COVAX that Africa would be looked after. Yet Western countries did nothing, did very little. Uh, we've been reporting it for 18 months. They've done something, but not enough. Not enough for uh, mutations to appear. Uh, China, again, helping out as much as it possibly can. Where do you stand on this? Do you see this as some sort of medical bribery in any shape or form? No, I would say the extension of geopolitics, uh, you know, that are going on, especially between uh, the Russian alliance and the transatlantic alliance, and I think uh, while there was a lot of effort, especially from the previous administration in the United States, uh, to paint China a lot more negatively as a source of COVID-19, it has worked its way into lots of hearts and minds of people, especially in the developing world. And so what this donation means, it is people are going to pay attention to those soft power aspects of China, which it has been doing more excellently, despite some of the propaganda that has been shared, of course, with regard to some of the human rights violations in terms of isolated incidents. And it's going to, I think, to go a very long way because the West has largely not been as present, and especially Europe. The United States has been trying, uh, but of course, I think it's grappling with its own issues. And there are, there's a lot of vaccine uh, nationalism mm -hmm. that has limited and the ability of the West to actually engage Africa in a way that is going to be appreciated in the long term. Um, coming very close to the end of the programme, uh, Andy Mock, can I just come back to you? Soft power, how important is that in terms of Chinese policy? Is it a word that's used? Is it a phrase that's used? And do you see this vaccine uh, donation in that same sort of area? Absolutely. So I think soft power is sometimes referred to in the Chinese context as discourse power. And in a world where we face global challenges and global responses are required, the ability to be heard, taken seriously, have one's views and opinions seen as legitimate is vital. And I think one of the big issues we're seeing here is in places with market-driven economies like the U.S., uh, they are not able to overcome the structural limitations of for-profit companies wanting to protect their bottom line, whereas China uh, is able to act uh, in the interest of its country and the world. And I think this is an important factor in its increasing discourse power.
well, I'm sure we'll be coming back to this subject in not too distant future. Sadly there, gentlemen, we have to leave it. Hassan Kanenji, Anthony Goldman and Andy Mark in Nairobi, London and Beijing. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me here. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Damien Lay, Ferdi Akar and Aseba Nureseva. Studio sound was by Aston Goodison. The programme was edited by Mohamed Abulnaja and Lin Nguyen and Joe DeFrace. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Wednesday. Thank you.